A former state trooper was sentenced to 24 months probation after a fatal collision. FOIA documents revealed Bloomington's top spokesperson resigned in February. More on these stories, I'm Kelsey Watsnauer. And I'm Lindsay Jones. And this is Lee Enterprises Long Story Short. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Long Story Short, where we recap Central Illinois news from Lee Enterprises journalists. Before we begin, I want to introduce a very special guest, Lindsay Jones. Lindsay is our Central Illinois health reporter, and you probably see her work every single day as uh, she keeps us updated on all things COVID-19. So, Lindsay, why don't you tell our listeners about what your role is here and how you came to join our newsroom? Thanks, Kelsey. Um, so, like Kelsey said, I cover um, healthcare for the Central Illinois region for three different markets. It's Decatur Market, Mattoon, and of course, Bloomington Normal. COVID-19 has taken up a lot of my energy so far. I'm hoping to kind of uh, expand on that going forward. I do write a lot about COVID-19, um, but as I've gotten settled in here and I'm learning more about the community and other health needs that are facing people in the area. Um, I'm looking to kind of expand coverage to other issues. I think there's a lot going on as far as healthcare goes. So like Kelsey said, uh, I came to the area to cover healthcare issues for East Central Illinois. That's about three markets for our readers. It's Mattoon, Decatur, and of course, Bloomington Normal. Um, I came to Bloomington Normal from WCIA. I'm actually not trained to be a broadcast uh, journalist, but I worked there for a little bit. I also worked at a newspaper in Champaign before that, and I came here because I missed working in the newspaper business. There's nothing really like it. Um, I'd never covered healthcare before, so I kind of dove right in, and um, I'm getting more settled into the beat, and I'm hoping that even though COVID-19 is still here, it's still very much a real tangible thing in our community that um, can start focusing on some of our other uh pressing needs in the community as well, because there are a lot of them. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting more settled in and diving in. Well, great. Um, we always, and every time we have a guest, <laughs> a, uh, one of our coworkers in the studio, we always ask like the serious, who are you? <laughs> what do you do question? But um, I also always want to ask, since you've been here for a couple months now, what is your favorite spot in Moving to Normal? food or otherwise I'm I really mean food I don't know why I pretend like I don't (laughs) that's a great question and it's also a hard question which is a really good problem to have um so I'm a big fan of fish and chips at Crawford's Corner Pub (laughs) um going to Mystic Kitchen is actually on my to-do list I have been really enamored with their menu I used to work at a craft cocktail bar so what they've got going on there looks really appealing um and I also really like Flinger's Pizza. I don't know how to describe it. It's been around for a while. It's delicious. I love it. Um, I also really love Mexamaya. I live like five minutes away from it. So I have it um, probably more often than I should. But it's absolutely delicious. And um, they're always a really fast place to order from on Uber Eats. So 10 out of 10 would recommend. I still really need to go there. It's uh, Everything on their menu looks amazing. Okay. <laughs> Well, um, enough food talk, so we're going to dive straight in with some local government news. Two candidates for normal mayor faced off in a virtual debate this week hosted by Panagraph Media. 
Incumbent Mayor Chris Coos and challenger Mark Tiratilli clashed Tuesday over key issues including debt, infrastructure, and economic development. Tiratilli said the town's roads, pension funding, and $81.4 million general obligation debt would be his three main priorities if he wins the April 6th election. Economic recovery post-COVID is Coos's main priority for the coming months. This debate, which was moderated by Central Illinois editor Chris Coates, was definitely a lively one. So if you want to read Sierra Henry's story or watch the whole thing for yourself, you can find that over at panagraph.com. Over in Bloomington, FOIA documents revealed the city's top spokesperson resigned in February. Communications and external affairs manager Nora Dukowitz submitted her resignation letter to the human resources director Nicole Albertson on February 11th. Automated email responses indicate she was out of the office and unavailable have been in place since at least February 1st, Panagraph's Tim Eggert reports. Dukowitz and city officials, including the city manager, were not available for comment. To read more about her resignation and her tenure with the city, or to check out some of the documents Tim received from his Freedom of Information Act request, be sure to find his story at pantagraph.com. Down indicator, the issue of recreational cannabis will not be on the April 6th ballot since the advisory referendum failed to accumulate enough signatures. But Herald and Review reporter Brendan Moore wrote the topic will still be at the front and center for voters as they choose who will fill six open seats on the city council. The makeup of the next seven-person council will be critical in determining the future of the cannabis industry within the city, making this election a de facto referendum on the topic. Four of the six candidates, incumbent David Horn and challengers Jacob Jenkins, Marty Watkins, and Will Wetzel, support reversing the council's October 2019 decision to not allow cannabis dispensaries within city limits, while the other two candidates, incumbent Chuck Cool and challenger Ed Culp, say they are against permitting dispensaries. To read more about what the candidates have to say on the issue, find Brendan's story at herald-review.com. Breaking news, and during this podcast, you'll probably realize that Sierra is not here, so RIP Sierra. But breaking news as the podcast is finishing up, Councilman Stan Nord in mid-March filed a complaint accusing uh, Mayor Chris Coos, City Manager Pam Rees, and uh, town staff of discriminating against him when the mayor would stop him from speaking or stop town staff from answering uh, Nord's questions during town council meetings. Uh, the town hired an independent attorney to investigate the claims, and the attorney uh, said that the, uh, the complaints are mainly related to politics and uh, that he was not discriminated against. That's going to be, that's pretty much the entire story. You can read it at pantograph.com for the full scoop, uh, where we have the investigation that the, the independent attorney did. Basically, the, the attorney said that uh, Mayor Coos is within his rights to uh, direct town staff from not answering Nord's questions because it's his job to maintain um, decorum during council meetings. Now let's move over to some health news. Lindsay, take it away. Thanks, Kelsey. In the past oh, in the past 11 days, McLean County's COVID-19 test positivity rate has jumped from 2.3% on March 13th to 4.9% as of Thursday. In seven days, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 jumped by 31. That's from 208 new cases reporting during the week 
of March 12th through 19th to 239 cases in the past week. It's a situation McLean County Health Department officials say is alarming. We asked MCHD what trends contact tracers are seeing that might be leading to the spike. MCHD's spokesperson today said she wasn't sure, but officials did say they are seeing an increase of large in-person gatherings where people are going maskless or aren't social distancing. Case count and test positivity rates aren't the only coronavirus metric to keep an eye on in McLean County. You can read more about hospitalizations in Region 2, the coronavirus region that includes McLean County, on pantograph.com. A bipartisan group of Illinois lawmakers are seeking to protect access to telehealth care that's largely a byproduct of the coronavirus pandemic. Back in the first days of the pandemic, the federal government declared the coronavirus a public health emergency, which led to a slew of policy changes at federal and state levels that greatly increase access to remote health care. The public health... The public health emergency declaration is set to expire on April 30th, and if it does expire, so too will provisions for telehealth that aren't currently protected by legislation. That's kind of what 40 state representatives in Illinois are trying to do with House Bill 3498, which was approved by the House's Healthcare Availability and Accessibility Committee earlier this week. Remote healthcare isn't just about preventing the spread of coronavirus, so you can read more about what healthcare providers and advocates say are the long-term benefits of having remote access to healthcare at panagraph.com. Now let's move into some education. Very exciting news coming out of Decatur. In-person classes were back in session this week at Decatur Public Schools for the first time in more than a year. The doors were finally open to students in a hybrid learning model after their original first day back was postponed in January because Alltown Bus Service didn't have enough drivers to cover all the district routes. That issue has been resolved and teachers, students, and administrators have said how excited they are. By the end of the week, they were calling the return a success for the district. Herald and Review reporter Valerie Wells has been following the saga that has been Decatur's return to in-person learning and was able to stop by some schools this week to talk to students and faculty. To read more, you can find her stories at heraldreview.com. Okay, with this story, apologies in advance. It's going to seem a little long-winded because it's it, it will be. <laughs> okay. Central Illinois school districts are beginning to figure out how they will use the federal funding coming their way after the most recent COVID-19 relief package was signed by President Joe Biden on March 11th. The Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief, or ESSER, funds are distributed to public school districts to help pay for the extra expenses they've accrued during the pandemic. And then this most recent round, ESSER 3, is also focused on addressing the impact of COVID-19 on student learning and learning loss. I talked to a few districts in McLean County which are vamping up their summer school programs this year and adding more interventionalist teachers to their staffs to address this, as long as they have access to this funding. Of course, cleaning, sanitation, and personal protection equipment remains a significant expense for some schools, so some of the funding will go there as well. Now, after that initial story went up last Saturday, I heard from Dr. Mauser, the superintendent at Tri-Valley Schools in Downs, and I learned while most are receiving hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in relief, his district will not receive any of that federal funding because Tri-Valley's status as a Title I district changed this year. He and the school board appealed to State Superintendent Dr. Carmen Ayala, as well as the State Board of Ed, and it stands. And as it stands, there's no way to change his situation. Ayala did say the state has allocated some of their funds for school districts like Tri-Valley and determined they will receive about $63 per pupil. In his letter to Ayala, Mauser pointed out Tri-Valley has been in person all year, had to upgrade their tech capabilities, increase cleaning protocols, and the district has spent more than $80,000 on substitutes because of quarantine protocols and illness. 
Tri-Valley is the only public school district in McLean County not looking forward to a federal check, but 71 districts in the state are in the same boat, including some from our surrounding counties. So if you wanted to know more about this funding issue, you can find my reports at panagraph.com. Okay, so let's move into some sports. Yeah, let's give you a breather. Redbirds softball eight-game winning streak continued this week with a 6-0 win over Northern Illinois. With a record of 16-4 so far, Panagraph reporter Randy Reinhart reports that's the program's best start since 1988. The pandemic and some inclement weather gave Illinois State a few bumps in the road, but players say they are hitting their stride as a team and have exceeded expectations. Three of the losses for Illinois State University came from nationally ranked Clemson, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And Coach Melinda Fisher said they haven't been able to face as many nationally ranked teams as usual because of some cancellations. To read more from Fisher and the players on what's working for them this season, you can find Randy's reporting at Pantograph.com. Now over in March Madness land, the University of Illinois men's basketball team fell to Loyola, Chicago, almost immediately after last week's episode of the pod was posted on Saturday, so I can't help but feeling like I kind of jinxed them by hyping them too much after their first round win over Drexel. Um... So the upstate from number eight Loyola docked the Fighting Illini out of the NCAA tournament with a final score of 71-58. Hailed and Review reporter Matt Flatten was in Indianapolis for the Illinois games and not only has full coverage, but also wrote a column this week reflecting on a season he called an adventure that ended too soon. Those can be found on all three of our websites, herald-review.com, jg-tc.com, and panagraph.com. Sorry if I jinxed you, Illini. Anyways, um, now let's move into some public safety and courts news. A former state trooper was sentenced Tuesday to 24 months probation for reckless conduct causing bodily harm. Jeffrey Denning pleaded guilty in January to the misdemeanor charge in a plea deal that saw the dismissal of a Class 3 felony charge of reckless homicide. He was accused of causing the death of 26-year-old Kelly Wilson, who died after Denning's squad car plowed into her van at more than 85 miles per hour in Decatur on the night of May 7, 2016. In addition to the two-year probation, Denning was ordered to pay $5,000 in restitution. Herald and Review reporter Tony Reed was in the courtroom this week. He noted Wilson's family had wanted the former trooper to pay something toward her funeral expenses. Those cost the family more than $20,000. Denning was also ordered to perform 300 hours of community service. Tony has the full details on this case, including what Kelly Wilson's family had to say when given the opportunity to face Denning. To read more, find his story at heraldreview.com. A Decatur teen was rushed to the hospital this week with a gunshot wound after police say he took a bullet meant for his father. Sworn affidavits from Decatur police indicate the 15-year-old boy's father confronted several men from Springfield outside of a house on Church Street around 3 a.m. Monday. Just as the men were about to leave, the father is said to have been trying to separate the boy and his 18-year-old sister, who were caught up in the argument. This prompted the Springfield men to get involved. Police say the father displayed a firearm and one of the men fired at him and struck the 15-year-old in the groin. A 21-year-old Springfield man and the father of the victim were arrested by Decatur police on preliminary weapons and battery charges. For more details on the shooting and their cases, you can find Herald and Review reporter Tony Reed's story at herald-review.com. Okay, to close out, we're going to talk a little bit about Illinois' favorite fast food restaurant, Steak and Shake. Um, Sierra Henry did a really extensive story looking back at the at Steak and Shake because it started in normal in the 70s, but recently they announced a quote-unquote revolu- a radical transformation, I'm sorry, that they are going to have their customers place or Yes, she's here. She gets to talk about it. 
Uh, so this week I wrote about Steak and Shake, which is one of my favorite restaurants and that's something that I definitely have really happy memories about. Um, but basically what has happened is Steak and Shake announced this um, really incredible change to go to uh, kiosk only ordering. So they're ditching their dining rooms and customers will now be placing their orders through a kiosk. Uh, they will not have dining service at all. It will all be drive through and this kiosk ordering, which is really kind of a shame because uh, Steak and Shake was founded in Normal in 1934 by Gus and Edith Belt and basically it was founded on the premise that it was a sit-down it was a fast food restaurant with sit-down service and back then uh, to even drive home the point uh, Gus would wheel in barrels of steak to hand grind into patties which is where you got the steak uh the steak burger and then they also had the hand dipped um shakes which are amazing are really delicious i i love steak and shake and so the story i did uh because there's not many people around anymore that uh that were alive when it first opened i talked with some people who um used to frequent steak and shake back in the 70s when it was a really popping place um i actually was told of this thing called the gag and vomit oh it's uh, well someone said it's the gag and vomit but it's i've the other more common name i think is called tooling the gag which is where teenagers would drive into the steak and shake parking lot circle around the parking lot and then looking for friends and then they would get back out on main street and go to dog and suds uh that was the thing to do it was i mean if you're from a small town you you pretty much you have the you have the gag in my hometown it's walmart and mcdonald's so (laughs) but i mean um back then you work they had curbside waiters that were called kirby's and um i spoke to one of them that kind of described the atmosphere and stuff and it was just it was a really good story i hope you read it i hope you like it um yeah it's second shake's been around for 87 years there's lots of history to tell my grandmother um it was steak and shake was one of her favorite restaurants and we had to eat at steak and shake for every on every vacation that we went in uh, so i lo- also love steak and shake i grew up eating there i actually really liked their vegetable soup for the longest time and then um my boyfriend and i also spent our first valentine's day date at steak and shake uh, but you can fi- you can find all of this not my story not like my personal stories but you can read the actual story that i wrote about steak and shake at pantograph.com if you're interested minor inquiry they had soup well yeah because steak and one of steak and shake's most famous items on the menu was the chili chili is a soup i'm not even going to argue about it with you you're wrong whatever you're about to say is i actually agree okay i just forgot um they had chili mac which is uh, which is chili on top of spaghetti not macaroni though so i don't like that it's called mac but um actually the commissary here i didn't get into this in the story but there there was the commissary here where they made all the chili and then that was like shut down in 2010 which is actually really sad and i don't even know if they sell chili anymore i don't think they do they still have chili mac oh okay i've been i haven't been to steak and shake in a long time you know what it's been a hard day i might go to steak and shake after this we're just 
plug in Steak and Shake real hard here. I mean, <laughs> who didn't grow up on Steak and Shake? They have the best fries, and everyone who says otherwise is probably wrong. They're uh, Midwestern. It's, like it's they're very Midwestern fries. You are absolutely correct. And they're like the shoestring fries. Like I'm, I love all fries really. I like the fat ones, the waffle ones, the curly ones the skinny ones i love all fries but steak and shake and i always get their buffalo sauce Ooh, it's fire man it's so good what were you gonna tell me about the the uh not restaurants <laughs> so i think one of the fun things about like stories is that they can lead you to um other pieces of information so there was a comment i saw at the bottom of sierra's story that said that steak and shake's brand was like you know, they are a restaurant emphasis on the rest, you know, they're not going to make you work. And they had a commercial that ran from the nineties into like, I think the early two thousands. And I watched it on YouTube. And one of their examples about how they take care of you was that you don't have to pump your own ketchup. You just had a ketchup bottle on the table. I'm not sure why that was like positioned as like the epitome of luxury, but there was that. And then they plugged their, um, hand dip shakes, of course. And they were like showing video of what I assume is like a McDonald's like competitor having their shakes just like go in like a, a automated line <laughs> and this steak shake waiter was like when was the last time you had a shake and thought that it tasted efficient and I was just what? like yeah it was really I, I don't know it was just like a really very 90s commercial and I don't know it was very fun to watch I couldn't believe that it was on for as long as it was it didn't I, I don't know um as far as like the ketchup being on the table being a plus like a selling point yeah i hate glass bottles of ketchup i find them incredibly inconvenient yes i would rather pump my own ketchup from like a a pump (laughs) it's much neater yeah it's so hard to get out of a glass bottle um also, I feel like every time I go there, well, okay, every time I went there as a teenager, I should say, someone always wanted to eat one of the little peppers, oh, yeah. and I never did, <laughs> and I, I, they looked bad, <laughs> but uh, someone always tried them, it's just, like, weird little traditions for a steak and shake, um, <laughs> I mean, you can still go there and eat there, but it's just, it's not the same. So that's going to do it for us today, folks. Uh, If you're enjoying this podcast and are reporting, please check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And while you're at it, uh, head over to panograph.com, herald-review.com, and jg-tc.com to look at subscription information and consider supporting hashtag local journalism. Stay and drink.